Hello and welcome to Maritime Matters. My name is Captain Morgan Dewicki. I'm honored to have with me here today my friend Saji. Uh, Saji is a Germany-based uh, Palestinian entrepreneur. In his work, he focuses on frugal innovation, natural building, and healthcare. He has a master's on environmental governance from the University of Freiburg in Germany. Saji, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me for this. I'm, I'm excited to have you on. It's been a while. Um, we just touched base last week and said, let's get you on here because I think it would be fun and uh, you've got some really interesting perspectives. Um, yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah. So tell us about your connection to Northeast Maritime um, and the program that you were involved in. So, so I think it was 2010 or 2011 when we first met and it was through the uh, Fairhaven project at the time you were was being run to bring together Palestinian and Israeli students, uh, I guess, to bring perspectives together. And I, I was attracted to the project because there, there wasn't a huge media focus. So really it was focused on the education of the people that are there, building future leaders and so on. And also there was the challenging part of having to live on a boat when, uh, you know, I mean, I, I didn't have that experience. And of course it, we knew it would have challenges and it was, interesting to have to do that with people that have different perspectives on politics and living than me. So for those who don't know, the Fairhaven Project uh, was a joint conflict resolution project between the Northeast Maritime Institute and the State Department of the United States. And that project ran for about five, I believe, years or six years. And the project uh, focused on conflict resolution and brought together Israeli and Palestinian students in the high school age group. And they lived aboard sailing vessel Fritha uh, for three weeks. And the project uh, was aimed at sort of bringing the two sides together and coming to common ground and getting to know each other on a very human level, um, really taking you guys out of the conflict um, and getting to know one another. Because I think uh, it's, it's easy enough to have perceptions about somebody you don't know, but how about living on board a, a vessel with them for three weeks and having to cook with them and having to clean with them and having to learn how to sail the vessel with them? Um, so what was that experience like? And did it sort of change your perspectives uh, or were you kind of open-minded prior to the program? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it changed my perspective. I grew up in a very leftist household. So the ideas of living together and, uh, you know, uh, wanting peace in, in the region have always been a part of my life. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of anxiety that you have to face when you, when you frankly have to live with Israelis. I mean, I, I've never had that experience. And the only experience that I've had with Israelis is maybe with a soldier. And I mean, I don't know how it was for the Israeli students. Probably most what they know about Palestinians is what's, what's being fed to them through media. Mm -hmm. I mean, similar on my part as well, not just the experience with the soldiers. But then you have to come together, face face your own fears. Why why am I unhappy or afraid about living with an Israeli? Uh, how does it impact this individual? Can I see this individual as a single per as a, as as a person, while still you know maintaining my political views about what's wrong, what's right. Uh, and discussing those. I mean, I had flexibility in that I might be wrong in what I'm discussing with my colleagues there, but it it really was good that it was, you know, an open, safe space to, to disagree on uh, quite challenging topics for all of us. Right, of course. I think challenging topics for the world. I think everybody sort of 
um, has an opinion on on the matter, and it's sort of transcended. Um, you know, it's it's crossed into every aspect uh, of life, and I think um, everybody wants to have a solution. Everybody wants to see peace. So, um, I think it was fun for me to to be involved with that, to make some friends, uh, you included, and and but to really see um, what conflict resolution is like at a very personal level. Um, I think, you know, when we look at conflict resolution from a state to state perspective, uh, I know as Americans, we tend to think of it as a very diplomatic, a high level thing, right? Um, but here's a program that's promoting peace on a very small, intricate, intricate kind of grassroots level um, where you, you want to change civil society. You're not necessarily interacting government to government. So um, how did that program impact you? Uh, perhaps not so much with the conflict uh, between the two states, but did it inspire you? Um, tell us about the path you've kind of taken after that program, uh, where you're at today. So within the program itself, um, I mean, it was over two years, so we would come for a month at a time. and. Um, First year, I think we just, you know, tried to live together, learn how to survive with all those people that you have a lot of differences with, maybe form friendships, maybe not, but hopefully yes. And we did form friendships, but then the next year, you know, there was a big elephant in the room and we're all trying to talk about that. And what was interesting to me was that once we all said, you know, this is what I hate about your government. This is what I think I don't like with your society. This is how I see that things should change. We really, we really found that we're quite similar mm -hmm. we're not that different and then there were fears i mean in israeli society usually there's this fear that the arabs want to throw them into the sea and it's an interesting analogy because i am on a boat haven't thrown anyone <laughs> in the sea you know um and then you know you you face those things like we've lived together now we're friends we can we can we can accept that there is bigger parts of society that want to live together in a sense and then the second part that the uh, impacted me personally was forming uh, a good friendship to you and to your family mm -hmm. so after the program um your father eric Dulki, uh, also the president of northeast maritime institute uh, decided to uh, help me with some of my educational goals so I, I was pursuing besides my bachelor's in economics uh training in natural building mm -hmm. didn't really know what i might do with it i knew that it might be related to development contexts and uh, yeah it, it would have been difficult for me to to finance that on my own i mean education in the us is a lot more expensive than it is in the rest of the world so right. uh, so through that through forming that friendship uh, your father decided to sponsor me and then that kind of pay uh, helped me pay, uh, pave my career path where i focus on I mean, I'm currently focusing on one problem, and that's healthcare. But I can, I can, uh, I can approach it from many different angles. Some of it relates to building clinics. So so far, I've built two clinics in Chad. Other stuff relates to, you know, you develop further experiences when you're in those countries, and then uh, put my education in environmental governance and into economics into solving problems within the healthcare sector in Sub-Saharan Africa. So now. Um, what I've what what I've been working on for the last two to three years is uh, with three of my colleagues we co-founded a company that focuses on sterilization of medical instruments in sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, I mean uh, 
Tell, tell me what you want to know about that. Yeah, definitely. So I won't allow Saji to sell himself short. Uh, he's a true humanitarian, uh, a true believer in, in civil society and building people up and, and, and peace. Um, so his goals have really to been to provide for people who aren't as fortunate as we are. Um, and a lot of that involves medical technology, um, sustainable buildings so people can, can build homes. Um, tell us about the first project that you got started on and um, what that was like, what that experience was like. So, so after the training, I, after I did the training and finished my bachelor's, still I wasn't yet completely focused on healthcare. So then I was working on housing in Peru. And what we were doing is working with technology called Super Adobe that's been developed by Cal Earth. They're based in California, hence the name. Um, and the, the goal was to make it more adaptive to the Andean environment in Peru. So you're talking about an area where maybe you don't get a lot of rain, but you do get uh, sub-zero sub temperatures, sub-zero sub Celsius temperatures. Um, and, and the issue is if you build something with natural materials that has very thick walls, then yeah, for most of the year, it's quite livable. Mm -hmm. But then in the cold season, good, like, good luck warming, a, warming up a house that has, you know, a wall that's two to three feet thick. Right. So the goal was there to develop technology that fits to this, makes, makes the house ben benefit from solar uh, heating. So what we did, we attached greenhouses to, to, to the house, to the living space basically, and uh, worked with local staff to get the testing of this over two years. And so far, we, I think mission accomplished on that. I mean, we have developed a way to build super Adobe in a country where you do get sub-zero temperatures. Right. So that was the first experience. But then after that, um, I think I found myself attracted to work more in Africa because a lot of the challenges that uh, people in sub-Saharan Africa face are very similar to the challenges that Palestinians face. Mm -hmm. So, and in Chad specifically, I mean, the country is predominantly Muslim, uh, and and in the east of the country, they're mostly Arabs. So I felt like in a community like that, I can contribute more right. because I can understand their challenges. Okay, and and that that makes a big difference because if you can understand people's challenges, then you can ask them what they really need mm -hmm. instead of just imposing a solution. And uh, so then in 2015 or I think, yeah, 2015, we were building the first clinic in Chad. That was a very interesting project because the community decided that yes, it's, you know, it's funded by Adventist health international. So they can't really contribute anything to the funding of the building, but they decided to contribute in form of food and housing for the staff while we're there. And that was the first step into becoming more accepted in that community. Okay. Um, and then the focus became not just building the clinic, but rather building capacity in the, in the community. Because now I'm there, I understand that their challenges are not just that they don't have health clinic, then I understood things that relate to employability, the skills that they have. And a lot of the people from the local community volunteered to focus on one area of the construction so they could basically become masters of that. And so far they've, in the area, at least in the region of that clinic, they've continued building with the same methods. 
I mean, it's mostly structures that are supportive to the clinic, so they don't use this to build their own houses. That's another topic that we can discuss further. But what's interesting is that, you know, they've continued to put those skills to use, and now it's a source of employability for them, source of income. And then there was the last project, but we can come to that in a bit. Yeah. I think you just, you kind of hit something that's significant. Um, and it's, it's training people to take care of themselves, to build skills. And I think that's a big part of aid and development is you don't want to just go in and, and build something, right? Because you're not building capacity, right? You want to focus on capacity building. You want to train the locals to be able to manage that infrastructure on their own, to build that infrastructure on their own. So I think that's really interesting what you just mentioned in it. It's kind of that give a man a fish, he'll feed for a day, uh, teach a man a fish, he'll, he'll feed for a lifetime, right? So it's, it's, it's sharing that knowledge and that intellect with people. Um, and I think that's something you've brought up a number of times. And um, it's a challenge. Um, I think you've mentioned it's a challenge because you have to get those people interested in, in understanding as to what they're doing, why it's important. Um, is that something you've, you've noticed that it's hard to sell or it's hard to get really people involved um, to want to gain those skills and that knowledge? I mean, there, there's two factors of that. If you, if usually if you're paying labor and you're paying that labor fairly, then they will show enough interest to, mm -hmm. you know, to get paid. So that was how we dealt with that issue initially. But then instead of trying to impose structures on them, so there, there's different aspects of the building. There's, you know, it's not just the building, there's finishing work, mm -hmm. there's all, everything that goes around supportive services for that clinic. And then what we did is that we allowed people to elect which area of the construction they want to work in. What do they really want to focus on? And that kind of became a bridge to getting them really interested in learning. Mm -hmm. So the second time that I went to Chad to build another clinic in a, in a it's still the same region, just a different village. Mm -hmm. I think if they had normal roads, it would be like 20 minutes. But given that you're driving through the desert on undeveloped roads, it takes up to an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. but, but, but what happened with that project is that people from the former project wanted to join because they have the skills, they can contribute more. And right from the beginning, they told me that they liked how there was an educational aspect to the initial project and that they want this to continue. So this time around, some of them, and, and I'm talking about illiterate workers. I right. mean, unfortunately, that's how it is in that region of Chad. A lot of people are illiterate. Um, but, but they were interested enough in understanding what are, what are, what are the principles that are you, that are you, that you're using to, to design? What are, what are the safety indices? How do you, how do you ensure proper ventilation in a building? Why are you positioning the building this way? And so in a sense, they set, well, we created the structure where it was safe for them to set their own curriculum about what they want to learn. Yeah. Although, you know, they're, they're, we could have just viewed them as employees, but we, we wanted to accomplish more than that. Yeah. So one of the um, things you had mentioned a, a couple of weeks ago is this new sort of technology uh, you've developed. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your company's name is, um, what it does, and this sort of latest venture you're you're working on. Yeah, so the, so the company is called is called Nor Medical. Our website is nor-med.com. Uh, it's currently getting updated, but there's some basic information about what we do there. Uh, 
we really focus on um, clinics that don't have sufficient electricity or maybe no electricity uh, connection and thus cannot sterilize medical instruments. Um, so usually the way you sterilize medical instruments is with steam. There's other methods. There are methods that rely on light, UV light. There are methods that rely on uh, certain gases. Now the problem with those is usually either they need a lot, a lot more energy, or it's very expensive, or how do you dispose of all the waste, things yeah. like that. So steam is quite standard even in Germany. Our problem is if you're if you're converting electrical uh, potential into heat, you, you lose a lot of energy. And so what we've been focusing on is re reducing the energy needs as much as possible. So using more efficient heating coils, making sure that things are sufficiently insulated so you're not losing a lot of heat throughout the process. But then the, the, the challenging part, and that's, that's the frugal innovation part for Normedical, is that is how do you keep it simple enough? Mm -hmm. Because with, with other autoclaves, they're quite efficient in many cases at converting water into steam. Uh, but uh, maybe they're time efficient, but they're not energy efficient. And then there is no, there is no replacement component. And if you can ship the replacement components to uh, a developing country or an underdeveloped country, then the challenge is where are you going to get trained professionals to, to do maintenance? Okay. So the, the iterative process of innovation of that was to continuously go back to the clinics that we're working with and really understand what are the main challenges that they face besides just the sterilization itself rather than the whole process from the from the moment that the instruments enter the surgery surgery room until they exit mm -hmm. throughout sterilization to storage and then designing our product around that just having maybe efficiency in mind then asking them is this easy to use why isn't it easy to use and regarding the maintenance part what we've done is that we've partnered with a manufacturing company in Uganda, and th what that allows us, although they have less resources than, say, a company in Germany, they have the, the advantage that they have the knowledge on what components you can find easily in, in a country like Uganda or Chad. Yep. And then you know that the product that you're designing will function properly for the market it's intended to function in for longer than, say, a year or two, because usually things might go wrong after a year or two. You might have to replace a component. In okay. our case, it's quite simple. It's either a heat coil or a gasket. With another autoclave, there might be microtubing involved. There might be specialized drain ports that are involved. So we've avoided all that. Cool. So one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is um, kind of diverge paths a little, a little bit here. Um, obviously, um, here in the U.S., kind of going through a, a strange, a bizarre, definitely a significant period in history, what will be recorded as a significant period in history. Um, give us your perspective on what's going on. Um, you come from a civil society that is very oppressed. Um, and... What are, are there any similarities? What's going on? What, what is your perspective on, on the U.S. right now? I mean, 
not all the concepts directly translate from a country like Palestine to the things that are going to the U.S. Because in our case, our our oppression is twofold or threefold. We have we have the Palestinian government, which frankly, in many cases, is quite oppressive. We have the Israeli forces, and then depending on if you're living in the West Bank or Gaza, then you might also be in some shape or form oppressed by Jordan or Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan tends to be more open, but still there are issues there. But 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 the similarities that I find is with how protests by an oppressed group are faced. So mm-hmm. the moment you see someone labeling a protest as a rally or an unpeaceful protest or as a violent protest, the question should really be is, what are they protesting about? Not how are they protesting? Mm -hmm. Because how are they protesting? You you could try to trace back everything that happened in the protest. Maybe the police started the violence. maybe, Maybe one single protester started the violence. And maybe that kind of violence was not welcome. But the issue that we faced in our society and I think is happening currently, unfortunately in the U S is that with this labeling, there is this, uh, um, tendency to try to pacify the protests mm-hmm. instead of keeping them peaceful. You want to make them basically armless, footless, incapable of accomplishing anything. In a sense, you're allowed to gather in public, talk about your problems, but the moment you really want to change things, the moment you want to change um, your movement from a protest movement to say a revolution. And I don't mean revolution in the, ra- in the very radical sense, just in the sense of changing the status quo. Right. Then if the labels start to arise, then, then that should be an alarm that, uh, let's say that the, uh, the, oppre- the oppressors or those that are incumbent in power would like to stay there. They're, right. they're open to talking about the problems, but they don't want to change it. Right. No, I think so that, those are some of the issues. I think that's been one of the issues in the U.S. Um, I'll say from my perspective, because I'm I'm pretty young, but over in my memory, at least the te- past uh, we'll say twelve to sixteen years, is um, these issues come up, and you have so much momentum behind changing the status quo. You have so many resources being put into a request for change, a request for an improvement, and never in the radical sense. Um, and yet, we don't see change. Um, we, from a governance perspective, don't see a desire to reflect the values of the people. And it's It's almost hurtful in a sense um, that it takes such an escalation uh, to get change, right? So I think a lot of people have been complaining about the spurts of violence we've seen, and, and rightfully so. Um, protests should never turn violent, and, and that's just reality. And you know, you made the point that perhaps it wasn't the protesters, perhaps it was incited by the police. And you can go back and forth all day, but at at the end of the day, what it comes down to is there's no desire to really take up the request for change unless it's forced. Um, and it's strange. Why can't we see change? Why can't we see an effort from our elected officials to 
put into play the things that we need as a civil society to improve, to get better. And I think it's been 16 years of absolute gridlock on very significant issues. Um, and to what point do you say enough is enough? And I think that's been sort of this, this revulsion, this, this, uh, you know, spitting back out of us being told to, oh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. What's your perspective on sort of America's civil society? How do we improve going forward? Well, uh, it's quite hard to, t to tell you how you could improve, but the, I mean, there's, there's an issue that's recurrent in, in most countries that have oppression. And it's, I, I definitely see it in the U.S. And that's, um, there is this tendency that you label a group as the weak group. And um, then there's the strong group and the strong group. So you could, you could say oppressor oppressed, but this, then the question is, are you now trying to make the oppressed groups oppressors as well? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is the fear mm -hmm. on, on the part of the oppressor, as in I have this power to maybe stop and frisk and I don't want to have, an equal police because that would also stop and frisk me and I wouldn't be happy about that. And I think actually that would be quite dystopian if, if you had all black Americans and all white Americans arise to the, to the level of the repression that's present in your society. So, so now you have everyone with this police force that can stop and frisk anyone. Um, everyone is questioned because of their background. Everyone has less opportunity because of their background then then it's more problematic. And the, the, the transformation that has to happen is that um, the oppressing group, the stronger group has to be more open to really just engaging in dialogue with, uh, mm -hmm. with the oppressed group, as in real dialogue, understanding uh, what, are, what are the problems that they're facing, not just trying to cure the symptoms. So right. housing projects, for example, could be an example of that. Yeah, it's good. But if you don't address the the root cause of why that that's happening, nothing nothing fundamentally is going to change. Um, I, I mean, there's a Brazilian author by the name of uh, Paulo Fieri who wrote about this in the 60s, 1968, I think. Zagaji of the Oppressed is the name of the book, um, and he really talks about how there's this concept of um, um, that false generosity. Mm -hmm. So that's the oppressor, the oppressing group trying to label it a handout. You could label it as an act of generosity, but they, they try to do good things for the oppressed group. But, they, but the, the question of not making them oppressed anymore, which would also take away from the oppressor, that power of being an oppressor is not discussed in the open and it's, it's left unsolved. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you, you still see a continuation of systemic racism in the United States, even after the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, I, I think certainly things hinge on going, we'll say one of three ways. On one hand, you, you have all the sides come together you actually have dialogue and you come to a peaceful resolution and you implement changes and you try to, as a collective, move forward and move towards a better future, a better tomorrow. 
on this on another perspective the two sides are so entrenched that nothing moves and we just continue this this cycle of pointing fingers and blaming one another and labeling and generalizing and creating stereotypes and all sides become more divisive and we get nowhere and nobody's willing to come to the table and create uh compromise and 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 really discuss the 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 facts as they are and on a third perspective things get radical and and people go beyond their entrenchment to really create chaos and i don't think that would ever happen here but um i think we're on the it's a fine line because people need to react accordingly especially in government and when you've got people crying out for help and you've got people repeating the same exact message for now we'll say 150 years right since the end of the civil war people are repeating the same exact message and yet it feels almost like we're still entrenched or at least some of us in the, in this country are entrenched in those values from 150 years ago which is crazy it's crazy to think it's crazy to think that that identity has transcended so many generations um albeit in a different manner maybe perhaps in a different way but some of those histories have been twisted um and i think it demands um a true reflection of our past a true admission of our past um and i think we're already starting to see positive change um i think the sides uh, are starting to listen to one another uh, we do have some kind of radical ideas floating out there um they might happen on a municipal level but i'm not quite sure they will gain traction otherwise but, um tell us about the need for that dialogue i mean um tell us how easy it is to sort of flip the switch and go in different directions um based on your experiences i mean you 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 probably know uh, the peace process hasn't made much progress in Palestine since we last met. So if, if anything, it's stifled since I've, since I've been born. But uh, so so I mean I I could I could tell you from a theoretical perspective what I should what I think should happen. But uh, unfortunately, I don't think I don't think I've, I've I have an experience to share on that. Um, but it's. At the at the very minimum, I mean the 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 oppressive part of society should be able to accept that violence could happen. You don't have to accept the violence in itself. So, I I think anyone would be sad or probably disheartened if there's harm to their property, to their family. So you should not accept that. Mm -hmm. But you should understand that the possibility of that will continue to happen as long as as a society you haven't engaged in open dialogue mm -hmm. and then it becomes an issue of not freeing the oppressor but then the, the oppressed themselves would also become free from from this well and their on their part it's a cycle of violence on the on the part of the oppressed it's probably beyond violence it's uh, it's 
being daily disadvantaged in, mm-hmm. in how you in how you live your life and in the opportunities you have. Um, and then, I mean, countries can quickly de- de- uh, de-democratize, undemocratize. And I think at the moment that is a bit of a risk because of the current president of the United States. Um, but I think as a society, you still really adhere to those de- democratic values. So for people in the Democratic Party, for example, they, they should be very open about engaging in dialogue dialogue with protesters and really since historically they would uh, they they do uh, belong to the pressing part because because of power structures then they should also put their foot down and say we we also demand real change mm-hmm. and that would put pressure on the rest of the country to to fall in line yeah so, I, I i think we've seen over the past week um both sides are starting to come together and I think they're starting to wake up to what is reality um, and kind of putting their foot down. Um, We'll wrap up that discussion. Um, Tell us about what you are looking forward to in the future. Um, I know we had this discussion that you're kind of mulling uh, what's next, but what are the fields you're, you're really passionate about? Um, Are there any specific goals um, that you've set that you want to pursue? Um, I think the focus will probably continue to be similar. So healthcare related, development related. Um, uh, but but I think the, the area that I'd like to eventually focus on more is being full-time occupied with building clinics and providing all the training around that. Because I've seen, I've seen a bigger impact with that. I mean, bringing technology to people I'll probably continue to be involved in that and developing technology with people. So this is not, yeah, again, as I mentioned before, it's not about giving someone a solution. It's more like asking them, how can I help you? Tell you, tell me what solution you need and then you, and then you make it. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I will continue to be more and more involved in the construction of clinics. And that's because in some of those areas that I've visited in Chad, um, just the challenges in terms of resources are extremely different in, any, in terms of anything you and I would know. Right. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're talking about, about a country where there's flash flooding, but then on the, other, on the other hand, like at some points in the year, it's normal to have temperatures above 40 to 50 degrees Celsius. 50 degrees Celsius, that's, that's quite high. I, before going to Chad, I thought it's actually not possible that you mm-hmm. have temperatures like that anywhere on Earth, but apparently you do. Um, but then the, the challenges become, how, how do you conduct a surgery if the temperature is that high? And I mean, even if, if you ask any surgeon, usually, what, what do you want in terms of the temperature in your, in your uh, uh, operation theater? The answer usually will be, will be as cold as possible. Yeah. Because specifically with longer surgeries because then there's risk of one of the surgeons sweating onto an open wound and that creates all forms of risk yeah and, and so i think what, I, what i'll focus more and more on is um, passive temperature control within the buildings that i build i mean i i did that in peru but that was in terms of heating a building uh in chad it's it's the opposite of that opposite of that mm-hmm. it's in terms of cooling and uh, i mean there's interesting there's interesting technology uh, with 
geothermal cooling and heating that has been implemented in developing countries. But at the moment, I mean, I mean, you, you need you need spe specialized thin pipes. You need uh, you need electrical um, air circulation. There is also challenges with the substrate that you would put around this this uh, uh, device that you'd bury. So I think simplifying that and bringing it at least to health clinics and Chad will, will probably be my focus over the next year. I think we'll wrap it up. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's so good to see you, to speak to you. And we'll definitely have to, to check in more often. Um, but thanks for your humanitarian work, your dedication to building people up that are less fortunate than us. So um, I'm inspired by your work and I know our listeners will be too. So. All right, Thank be you well. Thank you for having me. It was, it, was, it, was, it was really a pleasure for me. And yeah, we should, we should do this more often. All right, take care. Okay, thanks, bye.